because if people are regulating the companies that they're also investing in, like that's just, there could be so much rampant corruption. I can't even begin to conceptualize it. It's such an ironic scandal because either they're so egotistical that they think they can outperform the market without the inside information, which is funny, or they have inside information, which is criminal. <laughs> so it's like either comical or criminal, I think yeah. are the two options that we have here. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, it's probably the busiest time of year in New York City. We got the San Gennaro Festival outside of our office. We got the UN General Assembly, Fashion Week, right? Mm -hmm. Which obviously people can tell if they're watching us on video. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, My sweatshirt day. Have you gone out there to the festival? Like for folks who don't know, right outside of our doors is Mulberry Street, which is like the heart of the San Gennaro Festival, which we've ever seen Godfather 2 is like, it's been going on for like a hundred years. and there's people everywhere. Yeah, I avoid crowds at like all costs. I don't really go into crowded situations, period. So I've been stressed out like every time I go out for lunch here and like the middle of the workday and it's just chaos. Yeah. But well, I don't know, are you, have you? Well, I think at least for you, in? it gives it something for the creepy dudes out there who I know shout at you and other staff members here <laughs> to shout at other people. Uh, uh, I actually have avoided all booths. I have not purchased anything at the festival. I'm actually planning today, I'm gonna go wander around a little bit. It's funny because I've run into people, I think you were with me the other day. I run into so many people on, from Staten Island on the street yeah. because they come here and they they run all the booths. So that's the one benefit of it. A lot of colorful characters that yes. are running these booths <laughs> and like shouting at each other and cursing each other out. It's been. It's always interesting when you walk out the doors in this time of year. Yes, well, uh, we got a lot going on though here. Um, This is a fun show. I'm really looking forward to some of these stories. Uh, Patagonia's founder has donated the company to fight climate change. There's some mixed reactions to that, surprisingly. There are growing calls for a ban on Congress trading stocks. We also have the Customs and Border Patrol uh, agency, which is holding Americans' device data. We've also got this big story, I think we're gonna start with Ricky, which is DeSantis is in a kind of war with some blue states, including Mm. Massachusetts and the media over this effort he has to send migrants uh, from Texas, it seems, to Martha's Vineyard, among other places. What's going on here? Yep, so um, the most recent, I think this is DeSantis's first foray into what um, governors from Texas and Arizona have been up to with sending migrants to different parts of the country. But he sent 50 migrants who seem to mostly be from Venezuela, from San Antonio, so they were never in Florida. But they, he says that they are people who expressed desire to go to Florida, and he offered them the opportunity to go to Massachusetts. And he sent them to Martha's Vineyard, which is, um, for those who don't know, a very resorty season very elite, um, left-leaning little island off the coast of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Um, He sent them on Wednesday, and by Friday they were sent to a military base on Cape Cod um, via ferry, I think. Mm. And they're being sheltered there right now. But essentially they were lifted out of Texas, plopped in Martha's Vineyard, and then Martha's Vineyard panicked and sent them to Cape Cod. And so there have been um, some very mixed reactions in the media world about what to make of that. And why is it that the governor of Florida is involved at all in migrants going from Texas to Massachusetts? Yeah, so I mean, the other two states that were engaged in this were actual border states that had migrants coming in. He's saying that these are people who wanted to come to Florida, that Florida has been burdened with um, increased immigration recently under the Biden administration, which seems to be true that there are more border crossings and theoretically some people are ending up in Florida. But he, I mean, I think that it, to me, there's not a question that there's a political just point that he's making here and he wants to, use these migrants, I guess, if I'm if I'm trying to put myself in his shoes, use these 50 people to make an example of, like when you have people who need services and help, like these border states do, not including his own, but yeah. other border states do, even just 50 people, which is a drop in the larger bucket, is a very, very difficult thing to manage and to take care of. And a place like Massachusetts that's very wealthy, that has a lot of empty housing right now, that has a huge tax surplus, budget surplus, one of the largest in the country, can't handle 50 people. Of course, there's a lot of logistical reasons as to why, and they weren't given adequate time to prepare to do so. But the point is, these are 50 people. This is actually really difficult. And we've seen DC and New York City 
express extreme distress just trying to um, accommodate a few people in the scheme of what the border kind of just has spewing over right now. So I think a couple facts that are worth sort of laying out here, like one is um, that these are not illegal immigrants from what we could tell, but people who've come from Venezuela mostly who've- They're uh, asylum seekers predominantly. Yeah, and so just for the audience, like from what I understand, folks when they come over here to seek asylum, if they turn themselves in, and make their asylum claim, they can then move freely about the country while their claim is being looked into. So I think when he and others describe this as illegal immigrants, that's one thing I think it's important to clarify. I think the second thing that's important to clarify is that uh, when he claims that these are people who are gonna go to Florida, there's at least some reporting that seems to suggest otherwise. You got Boston Globe, USA Today, and Popular Information all reporting that when they interview people, these people are saying they were approached, not that they were approaching other people. Yeah, to say I think what, what DeSantis is saying is that they were people who expressed a desire or an interest in going there. So they weren't necessarily people that were going to head there, Right. period. But um, one thing that I do think is interesting and actually does give some credence to the camp that DeSantis and Abbott are finding themselves in is that these people do have it seems a higher likelihood of being granted asylum in more liberal jurisdictions, like just to compare Houston immigration courts approve like 5% of asylum seekers versus New York City courts around one, three and four. So in a more liberal jurisdiction, they are actually more likely to end up being granted asylum status, which could be beneficial to them. But I don't think that that excuses yeah. like the, the methods that are being used here. But one thing I'm not sure on, and I spent a summer doing asylum law when I was in law school, but in Connecticut, is that if they come through the border and they initially check in in Texas, there's at least some reporting, popular information seems to suggest this, that their claim is going to be held in the jurisdiction of mm-hmm. Texas, even if they go to Massachusetts. So even if like, let's say they're going to more favorable places mm-hmm. for asylum, that their claim will still be held down in Texas. So to me, I think there's a factual question just about the asylum law. Like, are these mm-hmm. cases going to be, uh, are they going to be controlled down in a yeah. Texas jurisdiction or Massachusetts? But I don't think anybody really truly believes that DeSantis really wants to help these people get better asylum claims. I think the politics is more important here, the stunty nature of this. Now, I do think that there are important questions around, like, is the our Texas towns um, handling too much of the burden of our country's immigration uh, issues, et cetera. But I think there are also important questions that DeSantis is gonna have to answer for here. Like yeah. for me, this, this boils down to three questions. And I know that there's a, a huge segments of the media that hate DeSantis so much that it's really hard sometimes to parse through these. But when you look at the Boston Globe and USA Today, they have very specific interviews with people who don't seem to have approached anybody saying they were going to Florida. These are people who were approached by other people. Like yeah. For example, USA Today, uh, this, this person says, uh, they were approached by an unidentified man and woman who walked up to them and offered what sound to be too good to be true, well-paying jobs, free housing, transportation. As an added incentive, the migrants were handed $50 gift cards. Uh, so you have that popular information as a brochure that they've published that seems to suggest like promises to people that actually aren't actually factually correct. Like it's a different type of asylum that the brochure is promising the people that they're giving it to, but they're not outlining that you have to come in under UNHCR refugee resettlement, not the kind of resettlement that Mm -hmm. these people are doing. So they're being lured potentially, and I wanna emphasize potentially under false promises. So to me, there are three questions I have that are gonna be really important, and I know law enforcement is gonna look into this. Were the migrants promised anything for going to Massachusetts? Question number one. If so, were the promises valid or were they fraudulent? Meaning like if you promise somebody and say this Massachusetts offers these services and those are services they actually provide, all right, that's one thing. But if you're promising something that isn't true, that's fraud. Uh, And if it is fraud, my question would be, who's doing the promising and who did the promisers work for? Mm -hmm. And I think that gets to some, some appearances that DeSantis has made recently in the media. They all signed consent forms to go and then the vendor that, that is doing this for Florida provided them with a packet that had a map of Martha's Vineyard. It had the numbers for different services on Martha's Vineyard. And then it had numbers for the overall agencies in Massachusetts that handle things involving immigration and refugees. So it was clearly voluntary and all the other nonsense you're hearing um, is just not true. So Ricky, he's owning this. Yeah, no, I don't think there's any question that he's not. The questions are, 
like who were these people? And right now it's based on the migrants' accounts, which are obviously the the best that we have at the moment. And right. there will be this investigation into what exactly happened here. And I have no problem with that. I'd like to know the details of it. But my unsolicited advice, I have a five-point thing that I would have told DeSantis <laughs> if he had asked me first what he what he should have done to stick this landing and make his point, which I think is a valid point. I don't agree with the the optics of how he did it. But I do think that the point that he's making needs to be made that border states, not including his own, but other border states are shouldering an unprecedented amount of migrants. It's a really difficult thing to deal with. Just 50 is a really difficult thing to deal with. Clearly, they're at a military base right now. But I would have said, number one, have all the consent forms ready to make public immediately as soon as there are allegations that they've been kidnapped or frauded. Like, here's the consent form. This is what they signed here's everything's out in the clear legally two i would have sent them to sanctuary cities that have self-designated of which there are eight in massachusetts including cambridge which is also very elite you can make a point that you're sending them to elite doorsteps without sending them to an island that's seasonal that doesn't really like now their economy is much smaller than it was even a month ago because it's september Three, I would have informed the jurisdictions ahead of time just to reduce the likelihood that these people would be, like, as he said, deported off um, Martha's Vineyard, which they were, but they also didn't have enough of a warning to even really facilitate that in the first place. I would not have sent people that are fleeing authoritarian regimes after just declaring victims of communism day in my state. I would have avoided Venezuelans, certainly of all uh, people to send. And I would have provided a succinct list of demands for Biden and how to fix the border crisis or policies that he would like to be put to have put in place. And I think that that would have at least prevented a lot of the media panic right now, which there are a lot of unanswered questions, but it would, you know, there are people who are like comparing this to the Holocaust, which I think is just absurd. But I think those are like few and far between. But I do think this this emphasis that he's using on the word deport to me is confusing because I don't think he's he's not saying literally deport. No, no, he optics. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I know, I know, no, he used the word, but he's not saying that they're literally deported. But like the optics of them being but shipped he should be on per a the bus. Ricky, the, the Ricky sort of comms plan, I think he should be very careful here because if he's going to make this political point, I think yeah. his language really matters. No, it totally So when does. he calls people legal immigrants, I think that's, I think, an error, like if I'm being kind. <laughs> Two is when he says they're being deported. Like in one sentence, he talks about Massachusetts. Well, he basically, he's a little loose with his language in this interview, but in another part of this interview, he talks about it as being a sanctuary jurisdiction, I think is the term he uses. It's only when 50 get put into Martha's Vineyard, which wasn't saying they didn't want this. They said they wanted this. They said they were a sanctuary jurisdiction. These were people who were basically destitute and then put in a situation where they could have succeeded, but that was all virtue signaling. And not only did they not welcome them, they deported them the next day with the National Guard. In the same paragraph, he says that these people are being deported from that jurisdiction, which is inaccurate because nobody claims that Massachusetts, uh, that uh, Martha's Vineyard is more favorable as a quote unquote sanctuary jurisdiction yeah, Boston than other parts is a of sanctuary city. Yeah. And like so Boston would have places. been a better place to send yeah. them. So because, deport is like a, I think yeah. a very deceptive Yeah, Well, I think, I think his point was, as he was saying that it's like the, the video of them literally being right. bussed off the island on a ferry. It looks pretty bad for yeah. Martha's Vineyard. Well, I, you got to transport people out of an island. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, what I, mean, I don't it's know it's if these people- also 50 people and like the island, I think if they had been given adequate warning, this is a very progressive island. I would bet that a lot of people are pro-immigrant and would like to actually absorb 50 people. I think that would have been feasible and doable. Right. If you're but going do those to- people want to stay there? Like another question I have is, was this volunteer? Because these are people who are allowed to voluntarily go wherever they want. So when people they say they're being deported- They definitely knew they were going were they to Massachusetts. Taken- because like in my from my perspective i don't have any evidence to to think that these people were forcibly removed from texas i also don't have any evidence that they were forcibly removed from martha's vineyard either so when people use the language on either side of that equation i think it's a little bit inaccurate i yeah. do think that there's a ton of smoke when it comes to the fact that they were given false information to leave texas yeah and some of them 
at least claim that they didn't even know they were going to Martha's Vineyard. They thought they were going to Boston. There's some claims that I've heard. So, like, and I'm not sure. Like, this, there's a lot to. It parse seems like they here. definitely knew they were going to Massachusetts, yeah. and they were told that it was like a sanctuary place or a sanctuary. And I think that there was an assumption that it would have been Boston, right, on that basis. But it seems like a lot of them didn't know they were going to an island. Period. Yeah, and so to me, like the fact that they're given transport off of that island, I would need to know more about how coercive that was or it wasn't. It doesn't and what, seem like there's reports that it was. Yeah. Coercive. So to me, it's like, well, let's you know that's just what needs to happen when there's a bunch of people who want to leave a place right and don't have the resources but like the bigger question for me is there's two parts of this right which is our big broken immigration system and as you mm -hmm. said the people who need to shoulder that there is a political argument to be made i'm not sure putting people on an airplane no, in this really I, this sloppy is way definitely i think there's it's like a spectrum here where i think what abbott did and putting people on buses and sending them to major cities that have large infrastructure is i mean i don't totally defend that but that's right. way more defensible than putting people on an airplane to a place that they with maybe a video didn't camera know. apparently yeah with what was allegedly there was a video camera on this uh airplane that was used to capture footage that apparently uh showed up on fox news oh, so okay. to me that's like the stunty nature of this it and, is stunty and and it's also yeah. a seasonal economy and you're putting people there in september which is the worst time to right get your feet on the ground There's like confusion. it's it's way more stunty because it's just dunking on the obama's uh, like 12 million dollar home there whatever there right. like the optics <laughs> of that or sending them to kamala harris's doorstep which is different from sending them to sanctuary cities that have claimed to be sanctuary cities that cripple or crippled by just a few people and just one i have one more question before we move off of this who's perla or perla i, I don't know there's like <laughs> i guess it's like multiple migrants are talking about this one tall blonde woman named perla who said like free housing and gift cards and mm -hmm. there's various reports but um she seems to be the consistent figure and so we don't really know anything about her there's like a five thousand dollar reward for information about her yeah um, and that's one of the things like if i were DeSantis, i'd be like here's exactly what everyone was told right like let's just not even have a conversation about who perla is because now we're talking about some like mythical blonde woman yeah. who's luring people i suspect that he doesn't fully know this has a little bit of a bridge gate if you're old enough to remember the Christie bridge gate it has a bit of a bridge gate feel to me in the sense that you have a governor who is involved in a very political act and a lot of the people under my prediction is there's going to be some people thrown under some buses here mm -hmm. and DeSantis will probably protect himself from from criminal prosecution there's probably enough distance between him and some of these people who are doing these acts but the fact that he's on Fox News naming the vendor that flew these people yeah. owning this means yeah, that no, this is anything not. untoward that happened by those vendors, even if he's not criminally liable, which there's investigations now being opened up in local jurisdictions, probably by the FBI, I would imagine too, which I don't know enough to know about what fraud, like what is fraud here or not. Mm -hmm. To me, like this is gonna be a does. problem It's for all him. hearsay right now. Yeah, it's yeah. gonna be a problem for him. Obviously, it's also gonna be politically helpful for his, his uh, future if he runs in the Republican primary for president. And I think that's what it gets to is like, it is a sign of our, politics being so broken that we're using people as pawns like this. And I also think that immigration, I agree with you that the immigration system is broken. And I think like, this is to me, not how we have this debate. No, there's no solutions that are being presented. And that yeah. would be the way to uh, make this point a whole lot better. I'd like some solutions. Let's move on, Ricky. Let's talk about Patagonia. We've got this CEO, Yvonne Chenard, who founded this company, Patagonia, back in 1973. And he announced last week that he was going to donate his whole company to fight climate change. And what's interesting is the structure that he's using here. 2% of the company is a privately held company uh, are going to go to a family trust that the family controls with preferred voting shares, basically saying that the family is going to control the company moving forward with that 2%. 98% is going to go to a 501c4 organization. Um, Ricky, the internet had some strange reactions to this. Some people cheered this on. Some people, you know, found, I think, some sinister motive here that may or may not be there. Uh, and then there is a, I think, an accusation of hypocrisy in the way the media covered this. Where should we start? Well, it's interesting, the reaction. I feel like I haven't really heard a lot about it in the conservative ecosystem. People aren't really that concerned about it as far as I'm aware. But a lot of people on the left who I imagine are probably behind the cause that he is dedicated this entire 
$3 billion worth of his company towards. It seems at first we're kind of fawning and then afterwards we're suspicious of his his tax status or, yeah. or is, is there a write-off here or is like, should there be a billionaire in the first place? Which it seems like he himself, he's said that he thinks that billionaires are what a policy flaw is yeah. that, were those his words. Um, so, I mean, to me, I just like, whatever, like he right. can do his thing. This is clearly an important thing to him. I'd rather him, if he's putting his money towards something, at least it's not diluted through taxes and like he's supposed to just donate it to the government. Like he can donate it to a cause. To me, this is fine. I'm yeah. not worried about it. He's a weird character. We're going to link to this New Yorker article about him. And, you know, he's kind of a self-loathing billionaire. He's kind of like if you watch Succession, like Logan Roy's brother is kind of what this guy is like. And this, I think that just went over your head. Um, no, I'm trying to, I watched one season of he's it. Like I didn't really like it, uncle. to be honest. He's the cranky uncle who sits on the board, but that's as if both Logan and this guy were fused together. Okay. And Logan Roy hated his own company and like billionaires generally. Yeah. Um, not that this guy hates his company, but he seems very reluctant to be a CEO of a major corporation. Well, his family also doesn't want the yeah. company either. Very like interesting. They're, they're yeah. totally fine with it, which is cool. I mean, they're living by, they're practicing what they preach and they're putting their money towards a cause that matters to them. For me, like, I just, I, I think it's kind of disappointing to see people who should be championing those causes and probably agree with them on the right. first place, just dismissing this on the basis of like, just the amount of wealth that's there. I'm not really sure what the what the issue is, but this is, this is also his like, entire lifelong activism causes a company. He yep. already donates a portion of his sales to grassroots activists for environmental reasons. 88% um, of the materials that they use are recycled or renewable. They're aiming for 100% by 2025. And 100% of the energy used in their stores, their offices, their distribution centers are renewable energy. And so this is just mm -hmm. allowing a company that no one really seems too eager to personally profit off of to benefit a cause that matters to its founder. I just don't see the problem. Well, you talked about his kids. Uh, here's Andrew Ross Sorkin uh, on TV just talking about how unique this situation truly is. He effectively said, I don't need any money anymore. I'm done, which I think unto itself is sort of a fascinating decision. By the way, at one point they went down the road of looking at a SPAC about in terms of how they could raise money and what they were gonna ultimately this do with it. a better way to keep it pure. The, the kids. <laughs> This to me was so interesting. The kids, his kids, didn't want the company and ultimately didn't want the money. They believe he says, quote, and, he, and, and I think this is true of this family, uh, the kids believe that every billionaire is a policy failure. <laughs> well, I think Andrew Ross Sorkin doesn't seem to age at all, um, but he's like, he's like the Paul Rudd of, of uh, financial journalism. But he must be in his 40s because he was reporting on the 2008 financial crisis. But I'll put that aside. This The structure here is interesting. And I actually think there's a, like a fascinating policy discussion here because we talked to guy, about this guy, uh, Barry Seed, uh, who was a conservative CEO of a company, founder of a company who donated the company to a 501c4 organization before the sale of the company, which meant that the 501c4- And 100% of it. Yeah, 100% of it. And so that the the- and a pre-sale was really important there, which is a little different than in this case. That's probably the only difference here other than the causes that he gave it to. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, because it's a 501c4 organization, uh, the entity that received it didn't have to pay taxes on the sale. Neither did he. Now, what's yeah, interesting- Yeah, there was a lot of heat there because the leader of that company that absorbed those shares is a federal, like former Federalist Society guy and a much more conservative- things, yeah. Much more conservative donation there, but essentially like the counterpart to this sort of structure. Yeah, and I was a little bit critical of that for reasons that I'm gonna be a little bit critical of this. Now, I think in the end, it's good that I like when billionaires don't give their money to their you know, uh, entitled children. I don't think that's good for policy. I think the estate tax should be higher, yada, yada, yada. I think if, this, if he had given this to a 501c3 organization, then to me, it would be a little bit better. So just so to make I a imagine, yeah, I was just about to ask you to make yeah. that distinction. So, I'm sure people are wondering. C3, yeah. C4. A 501C4 and 501C3 are both uh, organizations under the federal tax code that the organization does not have to pay taxes. The difference between a 501C4 and a 501C3 is twofold. A 501c3 is like a traditional, it could be a church-based organization, like, or it could be charity water, or it could be this media company, meaning we're providing a social good and we don't engage in politics. 
C4 organizations uh, are different in two ways. One is when you give to a 501c4 organization, the giver can't claim it as a deduction on their taxes. Whereas if I gave all my money to Lost Debate, which listeners, you should strongly consider that and go to our website, <laughs> find out how you can do that. You can uh, write that off your taxes. Uh, if you give it to a 501c4, like an organization I ran before I ran Lost Debate, the giver can't write that off their taxes. And and so that that's an important distinction for the people on the left who are criticizing Chenard, is that he couldn't write this off his taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, the second distinction here, and this is where I'm a little bit critical of both this and Barry Seed, is 501c4 organizations can engage in political activity. And when we talk about dark money, 501c4 organizations tend to be the dark money political groups. I've run dark money political groups, and they have certain benefits, like you don't have to disclose donors, which in this case, the donors have both outed themselves. Um, but you can you can do up to 49% of your activity in politics, right? Mm-hmm. That's where I don't like this. I don't like, like or entities that don't have to pay taxes, that can shelter their money in certain ways that are just outside of like basic uh, transparency and compliance rules and to use that for political purposes. Um, so, so when you say you don't like it, do you not like it on a policy basis or on the choice that these two people made? I think about both, right? Like, and I think in a case where, uh, the, even though I ran a 501c4 uh, and I like, if you were to ask me then or ask me now as, with my political beliefs, I don't believe in unilaterally disarming, which is what I imagine Chenard is thinking. Like he believes in climate change. He probably believes climate change is a political cause. So he's probably like, look, like if I want to fight climate change, I've got to do it through politics too, which I imagine Barry Seed says about whatever causes he cares about. Mm-hmm. Now I happen to agree with Chenard's politics more than Barry Seed's, but that this basic structure to me is still a problem. I don't think we should be uh, allowing tax exempt, non transparent donations to organizations that could spend up to forty nine percent of them mm-hmm. uh, on politics. Uh, that's just my personal preference, even though I ran them. Uh, and so that's the, I'll put that aside. But to say that a lot of the, the discourse on this is not is mixing the two. Yeah. Like like there he did not use this to skirt the tax code. He gave all of his wealth yeah. essentially, except for two percent away. The two percent he did he. Uh, the receiving entity had to pay taxes on it because it's a family trust. The 98% the receiving entity because it was a C4 didn't have to pay taxes, but in no cases was this used for Chenard himself to avoid paying yeah. his own taxes or use this as a deductible. He gave his money away. Yeah. Uh, so to me, that's like a misplace. I think some people can't see good. Like even people on the left who believed in fighting climate change couldn't just look at this and be like, oh, wow, this is exactly what I've been asking for, mm-hmm. somebody giving their money away. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely policy issues that I agree with you probably underlie this but like I think the perfect is the enemy of the good right now in terms of just I don't if if these provisions exist in our tax code I have no issue with people who are I think he's um, 83 the other guy is 90 years old you know they've made their wealth and they're giving it to a cause that they believe in I think that's their right I don't really see the issue I don't I mean and they're on opposite sides of the political coin here, theoretically, and it remains to be seen what exactly um, this hold fast collective C4, if that's what it's called, will do. Their goals are very vague at the moment, yeah. but um, you know, I think I'd rather people use their money charitably in a way that suits them rather than I'll just pay it to the government and yeah. not know what's going to happen. Yeah, and I, I think this whole, the, the, the larger issue here goes beyond these two individuals. Mm-hmm. Like, I think like, I think it's really strange that we don't tax political contributions in this way, or at least require entities that engage in politics to be taxed like any other business. And I, and I say this to, even about the organizations I run, and it's also uh, or I ran. Like the 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 other thing here is the transparency piece, which these guys didn't fall into, but it, it begs yeah. the question about these C fours. Yeah, I don't find that strange at all, though, because if they're political organizations, the people making policies are incentivized not to decide like you know if they're they're probably benefiting from some of these organizations and their yeah. activism so why would they want to be the the policymakers right. who are like oh now we're going to tax you guys like it's a kind of corruption issue I, I imagine to a certain degree but here's what happens and this is not obviously what happened here but like when i would run arena or other organizations sometimes it would be this person who comes to me and says here's a million dollars 
I just don't want anybody to know I'm giving you this million dollars. And I would take that million dollars. Now, I don't think the system should allow for that. Mm -hmm. I think that if that person gives me a million dollars, they should be forced to disclose that information. But yeah, what but where's the incentive for the system that just made a million dollars to regulate that? Like, yeah. I think that's the fundamental issue here. Right, yeah, and there is a revolving door. A lot of people who leave politics then go run these 501c4 organizations, they make a lot of money. It's a screwed up system, but I. But my, my bigger point here is they are not the problem here. Yeah, they I agree actually, with you. They disclose their donations. They're, it seems like both of them did this legally. The most recent example here, Chenard, he's not using this to skirt taxes. He's basically giving all his wealth away. His kids aren't taking it. The left should be applauding this. Yeah. This is an example of like they can't take yes for an answer. Yeah. Uh, so let's turn to another potential source of political corruption and <laughs> conflicts of interest, um, congressional stock trading. Yeah, so the New York Times came out with, I think, a really helpful piece that tracks uh, members of Congress and the stocks that they owned. And they found that 97 members of Congress reported trades in their companies that were influenced in some ways potentially by the committees that they sit on, mm -hmm. where basically they they potentially had access to privileged, privileged information. And this is fascinating because it comes at a time when Congress is debating certain rules that would require you know members to either put this money in a trust or uh, not own any stocks in anything that could be a potential conflict of interest. And uh, there's been a back and forth on the Hill over this, but I think it's just shocking in reading this, just how many members, and this is just what we know, like there's all sorts of issues with the disclosure itself, but it just seems like there's massive conflicts of interest happening in plain sight here. Absolutely. There's 97 members of Congress, which is about 20%, who have potential conflicts of interest here. 49 Democrats, 44 Republicans is pretty evenly split. And currently, they must report the stocks that they trade and that they won't use insider information. But there are 72 members who have fallen out of compliance with the Stock Act. And there's ETFs popping up on, like, buying and selling congressional stocks and trading the way that they'd have. There's the It's called Pelosi the unusual whales is they're planning two uh -huh. ETFs just for people if they want them. But I, you know, caution also people the buying that. Nancy Pelosi stock Twitter. Yeah, well, one is called NANC for Democrats if you want to track Democratic trades and then Cruz, K-U-R-K-R-U-Z for Republicans. And these will be coming out now. I want to caution, this is not investment advice, but I want to caution people who are listening <laughs> that you're only getting information after it's been disclosed. Yeah. Which means that whatever insider trading these people are taking advantage of is probably baked into the time period mm -hmm. between when they made the trade and when it's disclosed. Yeah. <laughs> so you probably yeah. won't be gaining the same benefit of uh, of what Pelosi or Cruz or others get from their inside information. Yeah, in definitely still interesting though. Yeah. I, I follow the Pelosi stock tracker Twitter. I don't do anything with it, but yeah. I just I just follow it. I don't know, it's interesting and to be clear data. for her, her, it's hus her husband. It's her husband, which I don't think actually makes a difference because if you're married, you know, like your assets are like the Clarence generally, Thomas situation. Right. I'm like, oh, I don't know what she's doing. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna well let's keep that audio of Ricky uh while we next talk about that. But let's actually Pelosi to me was rolled out in front of the press on this. She initially was reluctant to push this bill. She's she, really sweaty in this yeah, clip. Like she's, she I've never seen her so like, awkward. Um, she honestly looks like, you know, if you remember these videos from back in the day from like Al-Qaeda safe houses where they would roll out like a reporter who's been held somewhere and they're saying, I've been treated well or whatever. That's what the kind of vibe I'm getting from her. She does not seem like she wants to be saying what she's saying here, but let's listen to her. You know, I'm, I'm not big on New York Times and their investigations, but if, if that's what you're... Uh, <laughs> premises. The, um, here's the thing. Uh, members have been working on this. Just because somebody introduces a bill doesn't mean it becomes the law of the land. Uh, th there's been um, discussion about it. And this more, uh, just recently, this morning, actually, the committee, we've been going back and forth and they were refining things and talking to members about what they think will work. And um, we believe we have a product that we can bring to the floor this month. Well, Ricky, she seems pumped about she's, this legislation. Yeah, she's flip-flopped <laughs> on this. Um, and she's not in the New York Times piece, but because she doesn't sit directly on any of these committees, but, you know, she's could theoretically advance or kill legislation from her position. Right. But just to give a sense of the scale of how involved Pelosi is, or her her husband is in the stock market, he sold between twenty five million and eighty one million dollars of assets between two thousand nineteen and two thousand twenty one. So this is a, a very 
financially active family and somebody who maybe won't love this legislation if it passes, requiring even spouses to be in blind trusts. Yeah, maybe we'll get divorced after this passes. But the uh, what's interesting, and it's important to note that Dartmouth did a study on these trades, and they were they they did note that they had we work on limited information because members of Congress themselves are not complying with their own act. I think it's like a two hundred dollar fine if they don't disclose yeah, things in time. Like sort of toothless law. Yeah. Um, and they don't also have enough information to know exactly when a trade was. Mm. Uh, they only know like a certain range of time, which obviously dictates like if there's inside information, sometimes it's day to day, especially the way that our stock market is fluctuating right now. But they d- they could not find that the, the pool of members of Congress are outperforming the market, which is funny in certain ways, because you're not talking about some of the most egotistical people out there who probably think they can outperform the market, but aren't. But I don't think that that is dispositive here. I think there's that doesn't mean First of all, they, they they don't have full information, so we don't really know enough about whether members of Congress are outperforming. But but that doesn't mean that there aren't some members of Congress outperforming the market. Like there's certain examples um, that are pretty famous here now, like Senator Burr, who is unloaded like a huge percentage of his stock portfolio after briefings on the coronavirus pandemic in 2020, yeah. and he was subject to a federal investigation. You've got Representative John Rose, Representative Alan Lowenthal's wife, who sold on Boeing shares one day before Lowenthal's committee released a, a damning report faulting Boeing for two deadly crashes. I mean, these are very, yeah. very John Rose was sitting trades. on a committee um, investigating Wells Fargo for fake bank accounts and sold a uh, hundred thousand to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of shares in the company. Um, there were also which can I just pause on that? He should not be sitting on a committee investigating anybody and owning stock, and then he shouldn't be selling them while he's sitting on the committee either. Yeah. Like neither 100%. of those things should happen. No, definitely. Know? And there's um, even larger implications too. Like I, there's a stat that seventy five members held some degree of stock in J and J, Moderna, or Pfizer during the pandemic. Like there's just like it. You can run rampant with conspiracy theories on this stuff on from any political angle because if people are regulating the companies that they're also investing in, like that's just just there could be so much rampant corruption. I can't even begin to conceptualize it. And you're just opening up the door for like the worst possible conspiracy theories here because it seems like a conspiracy theoretically. It's just totally possible. It's such an ironic scandal because any investor worth anything will tell you that unless you're a professional investor, the only thing you should do is buy index funds, mm-hmm. buy the S&P 500, buy the total stock market index, et cetera. So it's both sound investing, like absent the inside information, mm-hmm. this, the actually rational thing to do is buy like a big index fund and let it be done with. And we wouldn't have any of these issues if they did that. Um, but they don't do this. So either they're so egotistical that they think they can outperform the market without the inside information, which is funny, or they have inside information, which is criminal. <laughs> so it's like either comical or criminal, I think yeah. are the two options that we have here. And I think in terms of regulation, it's pretty broadly supported. Um, three and five voters support it. They're, both chambers of Congress are drafting some degree of legislation, including some provisions that could force stocks into blind trusts. And you know, it's another, I think another instance of false bipartisanship here yeah. where you have the populists on both sides yeah. kind of championing this, but yeah, AOC co-sponsored a bill. Yeah. Holly um, said, Wall Street and big tech work hand in hand with elected officials to enri- enrich each other at the expense of the country. So, you know, we have kind of a similar war on big corporations going on here yeah. um, I'll take through it, this though. lens. Yeah, yeah it I seems mean, like a harmless and probably positive step, you know, in, in contrast to the other false populism yeah, around yeah. antitrust and data regulation and yeah, breaking up, you know, the, or at least taking aim at the First Amendment yeah. for tech companies. This one seems like, all right. At the heart, there seems to be more commonality here than difference, which definitely different from the antitrust stuff but yeah and, and spanberger yeah. when she talks about this representative spanberger this isn't going to solve all the challenges our nation faces in a day certainly not but taking one action to say when i'm in a briefing about the fact that russia may invade ukraine when i'm in a briefing about some pandemic on the other side of the world i am thinking about you i am thinking about what this means for my job as your representative and not anywhere in my mind am i considering about you know the call i might make to a stockbroker she she lays out she's like look we don't really know like what's going on here in terms of fraud or whatever but the fact that it could happen yeah exactly yeah like i think close the door on that if you're gonna sit on a committee blind trust yeah and done i think it begs the question you know we don't take positions on elections or votes for leadership in congress but pelosi like 
as somebody who spent a lot of time in democratic politics, I've always been puzzled by her as a leader. She is like the opposite of a populist. She's the opposite of a blue collar type of politician. She got a lot of flack for eating $12 ice cream on live stream in the pandemic. There's just too much here. She's of the sort of Newsom variety to me, which is like just oozes like elite California liberalism, which I don't think is like a playbook for Democrats to be taking back the narrative uh, on yeah. working class voters. Well, they're and, putting your feet to the fire now. Look yeah, at her I mean, squirming. I'm, I just hope that I just hope that they get the messaging better on this. She should have been forceful on this. She should have been. This should have been actually a messaging opportunity for Democrats to be like, look, we're taking on corruption. And I just don't get that sense from her at all. Like, obviously, no, as you mentioned, there are members, but there are also Republican members and Democratic members. Yeah. Democrats control Congress. They could have just been like, look, we're making this a priority. We're guaranteeing a floor vote before the election. None of this is happening. There may be a floor vote before the election, but they should guarantee it and say, look, everybody's on record now. Let's mm -hmm. make this happen. I don't yeah. know. It's puzzling. It's not puzzling to me. It doesn't seem like it's in her interest. <laughs> well, I'll just I'll end with one uh, Pelosi story. I I was once uh, invited to a, and this I think gets at her worldview. Somebody had a, a, and this also probably gives you a sense of of where I sit in this world at this point. But I guess this is the episode for all my dark secrets from Democratic super PAC <laughs> politics. But once uh, a friend of mine had a fifty thousand dollar ticket to a Pelosi fundraiser that they weren't going to use, so they gave it to me. It's the first time I, and only time I've ever met Nancy Pelosi. I go to this event, there are like 25 people in a room. Each table has five people at it. And it's Pelosi and each table is a different member of Congress. I had Eric Swalwell, who I at the time didn't know. Fascinating character, but each table was just the people who paid $50,000 to it and Pelosi gave the speech at the end. Everybody at my table was a pharmaceutical lobbyist except for me. Uh, and that's the world that she spends her time in. That's why she's like this. Like, so like, it's not only just the, in, like the committees that she sits on, but she's like, you know, rubbing elbows with pharmaceutical executives and yada, who knows what kind of information she traffics in on a daily basis. Like it's, it, it's really troubling. Yeah. You're adding yourself <laughs> as a swamp creature here. Well, I didn't pay the $50,000 <laughs> no, it was kidding. given to me. Um, all right. The border. The border. One more time. Let's talk about the border one more time here. Okay. Let's go back to it. Yes. Uh, Something's going on with Customs and Border Protection in our data, mm -hmm. Ricky. Yeah, so this is um, this new release from Ron Wyden, Oregon Senator, Democrat, who um, has previously co-sponsored a bill to protect data at the border. And he's, he's opened up a whole can of worms here where there's a database that Customs and Border Control are accumulating of cell phone records from people crossing the border that could be American citizens that is just sitting there for 15 years in a database can be accessed without a warrant and can be collected from you on suspicion of a crime without necessarily having that suspicion recorded or ever theoretically being audited down the line. And so it's a relatively small scale. There's about 10,000 um, cell phone devices or iPhones, uh, iPads, computers that the data was pulled from between October of 2020 and October of 2021 out of, you know, more than 100 million, but 179 million. But it's still, you know, here's here's an instance where your data is stored for 15 years on suspicion of a crime and it can be accessed without a warrant. It seems like a pretty egregious rape violation on multiple fronts. So make this tangible. Like, are we talking about like if you're going through like the airport, the airport, or, a seaport, theoretically anywhere that you're coming through and you're talking to an immigration officer as you would if you were traveling internationally. And they have two, we've known some of this, but this is essentially the scale and the scope and the permanence of these records is something that we didn't know before until um, a lot of these revelations from Wyden. But um, there's, there's a simple search where if a customs officer just decides that they should search your phone, which, you know, I'm not going to say that there aren't instances where they should and that, but that, you know, there should be a barrier to right. why they can scroll through your phone as someone normally could, um, like without unlocking anything beyond your passcode, just go through what's like on, on it on face value. Then if they suspect you of a crime, which is the next threshold, which there's varying reports over whether they have to record why that's the case. Um, but on the spot, they can take your phone and plug it into some sort of device. We don't know what. There's some speculation of different manufacturers that might be involved that copies all of its data and sends it into this database. And mm -hmm. then it's there for 15 years. And so not only is that a concern for the people who are physically going through the border, you know, you could 
your friend could have gone through the border and been suspected of something and then your personal stuff is in this database. And so the implications go beyond these 10,000 people and, you know, Border Patrol is saying this has been effective in fighting crimes, which I'm sure it has, but there are multiple holes in the way that they're actually... I, I, what I'm confused about is like how this even withstands constitutional scrutiny, like illegal mm-hmm. searches and seizures. Well, you know? so they've historically, you don't, Customs and Border Patrol like courts have given a provision where they don't need warrants to get your data in the same way because they are at the border in such a sensitive space. But certainly they can't like take your data and then not have a warrant to take your data on suspicion of a crime that can't be audited, theoretically. So there's a lot of levels of just complete failure here. And the fact that we didn't really know this in the first place, and it took a member of Congress probing to get this information out of them, and there's still outstanding questions that have not been answered, just goes to show that we we have these security agencies that I'm sure are doing a lot of really good things for us, but they're allowed to operate in this guise of secrecy and not be held to account and made to answer questions. And right. so now we have the ACLU, we have Wyden, we have, he's co-sponsored with Rand Paul, it's bipartisan. There's um, a lot of a lot of people up in arms saying this is a Fourth Amendment violation yep. and you can't just do this to American citizens. Yeah, and it's funny, it'll be interesting to see as I'm reading this article, certain people frame it as privacy versus some people framing it as an illegal search and seizure. And it's, mm-hmm. you can actually pick somebody's politics based on how they frame it, but it's ultimately coming from the same place. Yeah. You know, it, it seems to me like there's a lot of incompetence here too. Like you read it and it doesn't seem like everybody knows exactly no, what they're working it's with. It's completely here. shrouded in secrecy. But I think the depressing fact to me is that I, I, I do wonder, one of the reasons why this isn't like, you know, there are members of Congress who are up in arms about this, but you don't really hear a ton about this. No, in the, this was in the like one square. Washington Post article that basically fizzled. Right. And I think one of the reasons why is I think we're so numb to our data being violated. Uh, you know, Scott Galloway um, from Pivot Podcast talks about this all the time. Let's kick it to him talking about like how different generations view privacy. The way to summarize it is that as you go younger, people value relevance over privacy. And that is they want their they're making their they've entered into a compact with the commercial world that says i'll give you a lot of private information as long as there's a coupon at the end of it or my side experience is more relevant or the ads you start serving me are more uh, relevant or more specific so my dad gets horrified when he goes to the mercedes site and then audi starts serving him ads it's like how did audi figure that out someone's tracking me and it bothers me whereas i think young people think that see that as a as an advantage so he was talking a few years ago about this i think I would go even further and say it's not young people, old people. I think everybody has kind of resigned themselves to this. And and it's also, it's both the questions of the data that we're legally giving away, but also breaches of data. If you just look at meta alone, like in yeah. one attack, a data attack exposed 50 million users the same year a bug let app, an app access our photos without our permission. That was just one year. And then the following year, two third-party apps were able to access vast shows of information. That same year, the FTC had a settlement, which was basically a slap on the wrist to Facebook. And then you ask, you look at people, individuals, there's certain things they could do to, t- to safeguard their data more, like use different search engines like Neva or DuckDuckGo, use VPNs, use ProtonMail. People generally don't do it. I do some of those things, not the others. My ProtonMail you know? was hacked recently. Really? Yeah, which I like thought I was being smart. That's the only time I've ever had an email be hacked. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but you know what I'm saying? It's like there are certain things we could do to safeguard more data. Now, I know like those are inconvenient, but it's not like we're asking people to go to the coal mines every morning. Like this no, is just true. a different browser to use. Yeah, you know? but like... Yes, but these are also data breaches that are, you know, criminal. It's not the government. Some of them. Well, I mean, and it's also just people not really caring, but you have the right to not care. Yeah. But you also have the right to not have your data forcibly taken by the government. And I think they're two separate questions. Like, yes, that explains why the media didn't run with this as much as I think they should have, or I think any of us expected it to when we first saw this article drop. But... I mean, that doesn't like just because people are blase with their 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 data and their rights and their privacy personally does not mean that the government can encroach on them in such a what seems to be egregious way yeah. such as this. And I, I mean, for a company for you to like just give your stuff to the to a private company, that's one thing for you to be forced to hand over your phone, like even if you don't do a simple search with. Um, Customs and Border Patrol, they can seize your phone for five days. Like, that's a totally different question to me. Yes, you can, you have the right to be irresponsible, 
but you also have the right not to have the government be irresponsible on yeah. your behalf. You know, it's weird. If, if our politics was functioning, this kind of echoes the immigration debate, right? We, we already talked about how we're not really solutions focused on the immigration debate. If our, on this question of data privacy, yeah. we should have a commission Get well, we do together. have this bill that yeah, Biden and, and Rand Paul are co-sponsoring. It's bipartisan. The Protecting Data at the Border Act. But what I'm think, saying is like, I agree with this well, narrow this is, solution. This is a yeah. better, like, this is but, an example where the people who are ringing the alarm bells, like, unlike the DeSantis thing where it's like just ringing the alarm bells to do it. Like, here's someone who's ringing the alarm bells and says, here's the solution. But I agree that this narrow solution is really good. But I think that there's such wider implications to me. It, you know there we should have congress come together and just talk about both searches and seizures and data together and say all right let's fix what's going yeah. on here well with it's also such a burgeoning thing though and i think we have a bunch of really old members of congress yeah. that it's like hard it's it's hard to figure this out how to do it properly you could imagine the coalition because like a lot of members of the right are like skeptical of the, the use of FISA warrants now, whereas the left used to be it, you know, this, this border stuff could, you could frame it as a left or right wing issue. You know, there's obviously skepticism of big tech. I'm actually, I myself am skeptical of some of the data protections in practice because they, you know, have this sort of unintended consequence of, of doing regulatory capture where the big companies can comply with the very expensive regulations and small upstarts can't. So it actually entrenches the big interests. But I do think like we should get together and, and try to just solve this, especially the blatant abuse that's not just happening at the border, but in a lot of places in law enforcement where they're just not abiding by the constitution's uh, prohibition against illegal searches and seizures. It just seems like it's happening in plain sight and we're just letting yeah. it happen. Well, and there's a whole new frontier too. And I think a lot of the provisions that allowed certain agencies to be maybe a little more, like encroach a little more than your typical police department were conceived of in a time before we had any sort of understanding of like, you know, your cell phone could be your call log just right. a couple years ago. And today it's literally everything that you've ever said is basically recorded there yeah so i i think that it there's definitely a need to renew these laws and these special provisions now that your your existence is almost like permanently recorded you can't you don't go anywhere without your phone and everywhere that you've ever been is now a data point so well, I, th I think like one of the bigger issues we're dealing with here is you talk to people in law enforcement who've been around for a while is that most people who've come of age recently in law enforcement don't know how to police without these tools yeah so they only know how to sift through vast amounts of data or yeah encroach and i can on imagine devices. it's super frustrating when like they've they pointed out that their terrorist activity has been um border patrol said uh, terrorist terrorist activity has been stopped child pornography um export controls intellectual property and like these are actual crimes and i'm sure it's frustrating as a law enforcement person with goodwill to not be able to utilize data that's clearly there and could be useful right. in stopping legitimate crimes, but there's also the rights balance. Yeah, too. but you could stop all child pornography tomorrow if the government, if we didn't have the constitution, you could just yeah, exactly. search anybody's no, computer at yeah, any time. Yeah, yeah. You know, but um, all right, to well, give customs some credit, they did stop some things at least with these ten thousand phones. It sounds yeah. like, but you yeah. know, some scary stuff. I think that's it. That's all we have today. Uh, if you're listening or you're watching, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hit that like button. If you're on YouTube, make sure to share it uh, and leave a review. If you love what you're hearing, give us all those stars and talk about, you know, why you appreciate this show. Um, obviously, like we're trying to bring that nuance to these types of stories and, and different perspectives, which, you know, is pretty rare in media. And the more you're able to talk about it with your friends and give us those reviews, the better it is for you know our company and our mission. So we'll be back. What is today? Thursday. We'll be back Tuesday. Uh, no, same place. Today's no, today's Tuesday. Tuesday. All right. We'll be back Thursday. We'll be back Thursday. <laughs> there we go. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht. Video editing by Ava Maldonado. 